What does it mean that Ezekiel was called to be a watchman? Whose fault is it when someone dies and doesn't go to heaven? And last time we left Ezekiel, he seemed pretty mad and resistant about his prophetic calling. Will there be any consequences to that? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. Do you ever learn some new information and then regret it? Like, do you ever learn something and then think, I was happier before I knew that? Well, that happened to me. I was reading an article one time, and it pointed out that those you know, those hand dryers in the public restrooms, that they actually leave your hands really germy after using them because they pull in air from the bathroom and they blow it all over your freshly washed hands. And bathroom air in public restrooms, it it has a lot of, um, frankly, a lot of fecal particles, as, as the article said. So they just get sucked into the blower and then they're blown all over your hands. And it said it's actually, um, more sanitary to use paper towels to dry your hands after using the restroom, uh, which I think is less environmentally friendly, but I care about my hands more than trees. So sorry to all you trees out there, but that's just how I feel. But back to the bathroom blowers, when I learned this, this this greatly disturbed me. This is one of those things that I was probably just better off not knowing. I'm a bit of a germ freak. I always wash my hands after I use the bathroom, especially in public. And so this bothered me. It bothered me to know that because I'd always used them in the past, you know, back when I cared about trees. And and uh, that was just something I wish I didn't know after I came to find it out. And I'm going to drop a little bit more knowledge on you today. Some things that perhaps you might wish you hadn't known before you tend into this podcast, but they are going to be important for you to know. Um, here's, here's something I found out. For example, here, an office keyboard has 400 times as much bacteria as the office toilet. 400 times. Okay? Just if you want to think about that for a minute. Your keyboard, because your hands are over it all, all, your hands are all over it all the time, and you're constantly picking up germs from other places, and they're all getting collected there on your keyboard. It makes it even germier, way, way, way germier than even a toilet seat. Like right now, my wife and I are potty training our toddler, and it really freaks me out to see him trying to put... He's always trying to put his hands all over the toilet, like right before and after using it. Because, you know, toddlers, they aren't really concerned about things like bathroom floors and toilet seats. You know, they'll grab something on the toilet and they would gladly stick their hand in their mouth five seconds later without a care in the world. And not to be dramatic, but that's because kids that age are degenerate monsters. And that's why parenting, uh, it involves teaching your kids about germs and washing their hands. You know, as parents and adults... We live, or I do anyway, in this horrifying knowledge that germs and bacteria are everywhere and they can make us sick. And part of good parenting is educating your toddler of this reality and bringing them into the terror that you live in. And once they're disturbed by reality in every waking moment, just as you are, well, that's when you know that you've succeeded as a parent. But until then, you know, a toddler has no boundaries whenever it comes to germs. They don't know, and they are happy not to know. And your job is to take that child's happiness away as soon as possible. That's what I consider to be good parenting, okay? Although the keyboard right in front of me that I use every day, apparently it's it's even more germy than my toddler's hands after using the bathroom. So maybe I'm the monster. Um, I don't know. But I've looked this fact up. I have told you about it. And now I'm going to forget about it as soon as possible because I think this is just one of those things that I'm, I'm just better off not knowing. Okay, here's another one. Um, another fact today. Think about a panda. Now, you like pandas, right? Yeah, pandas are cute, especially baby pandas. I mean, if baby pandas aren't cute, <laughs> we might as well give up on trying to make anything cute because nothing can be cuter than a baby panda. You want to know who doesn't care about the cuteness of baby pandas? 
mama pandas. <laughs> when, when a mama panda has twins, she only picks one to survive and she just lets the other one die. Yeah. You're, you're not going to like thinking that the next time you're at the zoo. And aren't, aren't pandas like an endangered species, right? I'm almost certain they are. Like, I think I learned that when I was in school. Um, they're an endangered species, but apparently they don't care very much. So anyway, I had to learn this horrifying fact about the animal kingdom. And I decided that you needed to hear it too. And I thought about leaving it out of the program today, but I decided no. I am not going to pander to their pro-panda propaganda. I'm going to include that and make sure that you know it too. And here's another one. Okay, this is the classic. You've probably heard this before. But let's say a chocolate company makes a batch of chocolate and they find out, uh-oh, some bugs got into it, you know, while we were making it. So then they just throw it out, right? Wrong. The FDA will allow up to 90 insect parts per 100 grams of chocolate. Which is not a whole lot of chocolate. You know, one candy bar is like 40 or 50 grams. So, you know, what if that candy bar only has 40 bug parts in it? You know, guess what? They'll still slap it on the store shelf. <laughs> and you may wish you didn't know that. Um, I'm trying to make it easier than ever to start your diet if you've been trying to get on a diet. So, you know, those are some things right there, some facts that you would probably just be happier not knowing, not thinking about. And you might have noticed that a lot of them deal with sanitation. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's because maybe that's my germophobia coming out. Um, some people, you know, people, things bother people in different ways. Um, some people are disturbed at the idea of, of how easily life on Earth could be wiped out you know, with something like an asteroid striking the planet. Uh, like it would, it would honestly, it would not take a meteor of a huge size to strike the earth and hit it powerfully enough that it would wipe out all life on the planet. Like meteors that are large enough to do that, they regularly come in range of the earth's orbit. And yet that, that fact doesn't really bother me a whole lot. Um, a lot of the dangers on like a global or a macro level, they just, they honestly don't bother me a whole lot. Cause I just know that God is in control of all that stuff and that all life on earth, I, you know, cause of the Bible, I know it's not ever going to be wiped out with a meteor. Okay. It makes for a fun disaster movie, but those, those disaster movies are just as much a fiction to me or a fantasy as something like Lord of the Rings, because, um, I believe what the Bible says about the future and I know God's hundred percent in control. And so those macro things really don't bother me, but some of the micro things do like those things with the germs. Like, I don't know. I guess because I feel like I have more control over how clean things are. I feel a little bit more agency in that. So um, I guess I can spend more energy. Be, I, I spend more energy being concerned over the things I can control instead of the things that I certainly can't, like meteorites or the suicidal panda population. So that's what I'm going to share with you from the Bible today. Something that you would be, uh, basically things that you would be more comfortable not knowing and yet I have to share it with you because it, it's something that God wants you to know. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the Bible. He wants you to know this. He wants you to study this. This is something today of eternal importance. And it's an issue over which you do have control. And it's all really going to come down to this question. If you have a friend and this friend is not saved and you never talk to them about Jesus and they die and go to hell, whose fault is that? Is that their fault? Is it yours? Is it both? We are going to answer that today on the Cross References podcast. So today's lesson is going to cover the rest of chapter three. And I know we are five lessons into Ezekiel and yet only three chapters in. And so you may be thinking, hey, at this rate, it's going to take like years to get through the book. And it may. It may take years. But the pace is actually going to pick up a bit after this. Um, the chapters get a little shorter for a while. And then after this, the groundwork will have been laid for the whole first half of the book. So we went a little bit slow in these opening chapters because God is commissioning Ezekiel. He's setting the scene. He's preparing him to deliver all of the, the forthcoming messages that God has. So um, the book started with this huge vision of God and the living creatures and eating the scroll. And that vision has ended. That's what we finished up last time. So this section today is kind of transitional. It, it is still considered a part of Ezekiel's commissioning 
kind of like the last few lessons were, but it's also starting a new conversation with God, and that conversation will carry over into chapter 4, which is going to be Ezekiel's first big message to the people. So this chapter today is transitioning us into that first big message. And here today, God is setting the stakes. God is giving Ezekiel a very personal motivation to deliver these messages. Ezekiel has been given a tough job. He's supposed to go and tell these people, and they probably won't listen. They'll probably scorn you and reject you. And if you remember from last time, Ezekiel is mad. What is his motivation? What does he get out of it? (laughs) You know, what is going to drive him to push through the hard times and the resistance? And so God's going to give Ezekiel a, a very personal motivation today to do this impossible, this doomed to fail job. So let's pick up in Ezekiel 3.16, and we're going to read a few verses. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood... I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So we're going to spend the majority of our time today on the early section of verses here in this in this section that we're looking at altogether today. And so I don't want you to stress about how much time we're going to spend on this first part, okay? These first like six verses. It's really going to take up the majority of today's study and discussion. So let's get into it. Verse 16, uh, it says that this is a week after the previous vision. Vision, and That's what we covered already, of course. And God comes back. He says in verse 17 that Ezekiel's been given the job duty of a watchman. God says that when he speaks, Ezekiel must repeat the message. You know, pretty simple and straightforward. Let me read verse 18 again, though. God said, If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, And you, to Ezekiel, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Now, I feel like this bears repeating because it's really, it's the crux of Ezekiel's responsibility to deliver the message. That if Ezekiel doesn't warn sinful people of God's judgment, It says God will hold Ezekiel at least partially responsible. So now the first question I have today is whether when it talks about the death that God will bring to them, whether it's talking about spiritual death or physical death. You know, it says there that the wicked person shall die for his iniquity. Well, spiritual death would mean going to hell. And physical death would mean that God brings about the end of someone's life prematurely that they don't live as long as they would have otherwise. Or like in Ezekiel's situation, you know, the Israelites are attacked and and many times killed by the Babylonians, but that only happened because they had turned their back on God. So God had lifted his hand of protection away and that let the Babylonians in. And so when it says in verse 18 that the wicked shall die, the question for me, first of all, is, is God threatening the wicked with spiritual death or physical death in this situation. And so after studying this, here's my understanding. It could apply to either one. I mean, either one is going to be a judgment from God. So the verses, they basically function the same either way. The warning is going to hold true either way. And if you think about it, it is kind of all the same thing. Um, If if someone dies for their wickedness physically— then they're probably going to die and go to hell spiritually too. They're going to die spiritually. So it really holds true either way when you, if you're, if you're to question here, like what does it mean when God says that they will die? Well, either way that you want to understand that, these words are going to hold true the same way. So then God says that Ezekiel has a job as a watchman to warn people of God's judgment, whether, you know, whether that judgment is physical or cosmic Ezekiel has a job to warn people of it, and that if Ezekiel doesn't do it, then God will require their blood at Ezekiel's hand. 
And, uh, you know, I don't think it means that God is going to literally consider Ezekiel guilty of murder. I mean, I guess that is part, that's a possible read. You know, I guess I, I just I don't I don't think it's quite that strong. Um, I do believe that God would have some sort of punishment or or loss of reward to hold against Ezekiel if he doesn't do this, if he doesn't do his job. Because think about what a watchman does real quick, okay? The watchman is the guy, he sits in a tower high up within a city, and it's his job to look out for an invading army that's coming in. You know, if they see one, what a watchman is supposed to do is blow a trumpet or light torches, you know, whatever it takes to wake up the citizens so they can be ready to defend themselves. The watchman, uh, he has a super important job because the watchman is looking for danger while the rest of the city can sleep in peace. And so if the watchman falls asleep too, the people could be taken by surprise. And if the, if the watchman fails in his job for any reason, the people could be wiped out and the city captured. And if that happened, whose fault would it be? It would be the watchman's fault. So the watchman really has a life or death job. I mean, if he doesn't do it correctly, it could have disastrous effects on the people. The watchman himself, he might be safe and sound up in his tower, but if he is too late in sounding the alarm, then he might find himself watching everyone else get destroyed while he's helpless to do anything. And Ezekiel has now had this responsibility laid on him. And God says, Ezekiel, if you don't warn these people to abandon their sin and then judgment falls upon them, I'm going to hold you responsible. Now, remember, the sinners are still responsible for their sin. Okay, if someone dies and goes to hell, it is their own fault because it was their own sin that led them there. But this verse is showing us that there can sometimes be someone else to share in the blame. And you do not want to share in their blame. So, uh, you know, let I think I covered this verse well enough. Let me reread the next one. It says, But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So if Ezekiel will tell him, you know, warn the wicked, at least Ezekiel then is off the hook for that person. Because if Ezekiel delivers the warning and the person rejects the warning, then they're going to die, but, but now they have absolutely no one to blame but themselves. Ezekiel will not be held responsible if he, if he did all that he could. And by the way, if you remember from last time, you know, God's already told Ezekiel that most people are not going to listen to Ezekiel's message. Most people are going to reject him. And that made Ezekiel mad. <laughs> you know, so he knows he's going to face a lot of resistance. And, you know, it could make him ask, what's the point then? Why bother if most people are just going to reject me? Then why bother? What if everybody rejects me? Why should I bother? And so here's the point. That God wants to give everyone a choice. Okay? And not just a choice. He wants to give them a chance. And a second chance. And a third chance. That's why, that's why God had the tree in the Garden of Eden in the first place. God wants to give all people a choice. If someone never learns anything about God, you know, hypothetically speaking here, if somebody just never learns anything about God, then they would never really have a choice or opportunity to choose to do right. Um, but God wants everybody to have a choice to do right. So warning the wicked is giving the wicked a choice, giving them a chance, giving them a second chance. God is all about that because God doesn't want anyone to perish. You know, God doesn't want anyone to die and go to hell. God wants everyone to choose a different path. So Ezekiel, he has a really thankless task set before him. And so as I was saying before, he could easily be questioning it and saying, what's the point? Well, God gives him a point. It's kind of a selfish, you know, frankly, kind of a selfish reason to be a prophet, I guess. Um, yeah, as in, he's giving Ezekiel a very personal reason to obey what God is saying here. He says, because if you don't warn them, Ezekiel, and then they die, I will hold you responsible. But if you at least warn them, then you can be off the hook. All right, let's read a couple more verses. Verses 20 and 21. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. 
because you have not warned him he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done will not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Now, before I get into those verses, I just want to mention uh, kind of what it made me think of whenever I was reading this this part of Ezekiel today. Um, my first job was working at a Christian radio station, and I didn't go there because I love radio, um, although I did end up enjoying radio, but I went there to be their web designer, to, to run their website. And so uh, I learned, you know, basically self-taught. Um, I learned how to do coding. I learned HTML code, CSS code, JavaScript, and each one of those was really, it was an entirely different language on each one. Um, HTML kind of gives you the skeleton of your web page. CSS would give it the color, it would give it the design. And then JavaScript, now that was the toughest one. And honestly, I never really mastered it. Um, JavaScript was for some of the more special areas of your web pages. Like um, when, when you had a, a banner that was supposed to go up on the page, you know, only at a certain time of the day. Uh, JavaScript was full of commands that were called if-then statements, okay? If-then. It would say, if you do this, then the web page will do that. If you click this, then this will happen. If it's this time of day, then this image will go up. So JavaScript is in kind of the if-then language. And and here's what I kind of like about that, um, or what it makes me think of a lot, is that a lot of commands in the Bible are if-then commands, if you do this thing, then this is what will happen. You, you read those words a lot in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This is called the legal language in the Bible. And um, that's what this section of Leviticus, or I'm sorry, of Ezekiel, that's what it reminds me of. God says, Ezekiel, I'm laying down the law here. If you do this, then this is what will happen. If you don't do this, then this is what will happen. And, and from there, just God... He, he lays out a lot of various scenarios, and I love the if-then language um, that the Bible uses a lot. You know, I don't know if it's because it reminds me of JavaScript, or I just like the logic of it, okay? I just appreciate the clarity in the rules whenever you, whenever you use if-then statements. So God is being very clear with Ezekiel. If you have this type of situation, then this is what will happen. And so in verse 20, it said, if a righteous person... If he turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, and he shall die. God says, because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. So this is talking again about giving someone a third or a fourth chance. Um, it says, if a righteous person rebels against God, okay? If a righteous person falls into some kind of sin, you know, meaning, I guess, a believer here, when it says a righteous person, if a believer messes up real bad and goes into sin, and God says, Ezekiel, I still expect you to reach out to them, okay? I still expect you to try to pull them back into the sheepfold, kind of like a shepherd does with a, with a wandering sheep, be their watchman, or, God says, or then I will require their blood at your hand. I'll hold you partially responsible. Again, I, you know, I wish I knew more specifics on what it means for God to hold someone responsible. I mean, if we take it as literally as possible, it sounds like if Ezekiel doesn't warn someone about sin and then they die and go to hell, that then Ezekiel has to go to hell too because it's like he's guilty of murder. And I don't, you know, while I think that God takes Ezekiel's role very, very seriously, I don't think God is going quite that far because <laughs> if, if he was, then you introduce a whole bunch of other questions. So, um... I don't think anyone thinks that God means it that far, but but I will say, you know, God is taking it super duper seriously here about warning people. And right here, once again, God is telling Ezekiel to warn not just the sinner, but also the backslider, okay? Someone who was once faithful and then is falling away. We call that being a backslider a lot. And um, all the commentaries on this verse of Ezekiel, they, they really jump into a debate right here on verse 20 about once saved, always saved. Now, personally, I don't think you could really make the argument one way or the other about once saved, always saved from this verse. What, you know, either way, you know, people who believe that you could lose your salvation 
they read this and then they say, well, hey, look, it says if a righteous person turns from his righteousness, he shall die. And that means he'll die and go to hell, spiritual death. So that's one possibility. That's one way you could read it. But then again, if you're someone who believes in once saved, always saved, you could read this verse and you could say that, you know, it says that they'll die, but it, that just means God will cause their physical death. It doesn't mean that God will also destroy their soul. So, I mean, you could read this either way. I don't think this particular verse proves it one way or the other. So that, I'm not going to wrestle with that question here. Um because I just don't think the text right here is addressing that question. I don't think that's the goal of this part of the text in Ezekiel. So that's why that's a good question to ask. It's like it's a um, it's a good debate to have. I'm just saying I'm not going to have it today because I don't think it really relates to this text. I think the text is just telling us, first and foremost, that Ezekiel has a job to try and lead a backslider to repentance. You know, And after that, the backslider is in God's hands. But Ezekiel has a job to do, so either way. And then we'll get to how this verse applies to us in a second. But you know, I just don't apply it to the once saved, always saved debate. I don't think it really, I don't think it even really addresses that question. So let me read verse 21 one more time. It says, but if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So this is just the last case, and it's telling us, that if you warn him and he repents, then he'll be okay. And you, Ezekiel, you will also be okay. So this one is kind of simple to understand. Um, I don't think I really need to go much deeper than that. So let's talk about how all this applies to us. This, this is one of the easiest passages in all of Scripture to apply. Here's what it means to us. That we have a duty to warn the people in our personal orbits about judgment and an eternity without God. Okay, let me let me say that again. You are a watchman. And you have a duty to warn the people in your personal orbit about judgment and an eternity without God. And if you don't feel like you can have those kind of conversations, then you need to learn how. Learn how to communicate the gospel. I'm not saying you have to be an expert on theology. You don't have to know the answers to all the questions an unbeliever could have. All you need to do is just to know how to explain Jesus to someone else. And if you can't do that for some reason, at least invite them to a church where they can learn that. Because God will hold us responsible if we don't. You know, you you don't want to hear God say to you don't want to hear God say someday to you about your friends or your family. You don't want to hear God say their blood will I require at your hand. Okay? You do not want to hear that from God. I know we're getting into some heavy stuff here today, but it's like I said at the beginning of this program, this is stuff that you might not necessarily want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. These are things you need to know. Okay? I know it's one of those podcasts where you're thinking, <laughs> I wish I hadn't clicked on this one, but, but this is what you need to know because this is what the Bible tells us about our judgment. We have two types of people to warn. Number one is unbelievers, okay? And it's that's kind of easy to know what to do with them. Give them the gospel. I consider this the easier of the two. Um, that you might find an opportunity to share with them about Jesus, okay? So if this is someone who's in your orbit, when I say orbit, I mean someone that you talk to regularly, someone you know personally, if, if you're looking for opportunities to find an opening to share with them about God— you will find it. So that's what it means when it says we have to warn people. Look for an opportunity to share with them about God and Jesus and salvation and, and, and how to go to heaven. The second type of person that we need to warn would be wayward Christians. We want to try and get them back on the right path. And, you know, depending on your personality type, th this might be easier for you to do. For me, this is harder. Um, <laughs> you know, the way that they're going to take it. That, that will greatly depend on their humility, whether they're the type of person who will acknowledge when they've done something wrong or if, if they're the type of person to get defensive. So the way that they take it, and that's also going to depend on your temperament when confronting them, not to, to not be hostile or condescending about it. Um, but I want to read here something that it says in the book of Jude about reaching backsliding Christians. It says in the book of Jude, 
Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And and when you read that verse, it's not a suggestion. This is a duty to us. It says if someone is having doubts about Christianity, even if it's a Christian, but they're having some questions they don't know how to answer, the Bible says be merciful to them. Don't condemn them for asking questions or having questions. If having things that they don't understand. If someone's starting to get a little bit too close to the fire, okay, maybe they're starting to drift away. That verse says to snatch them out. You just lovingly, but you confront them about it before it gets to be too late. Because if they go on, if they fully embrace a sinful lifestyle, and you'll know it when you see it, well, then that verse says that we show them mercy with fear which means that we keep a distance from them. And, and you know, that's sad when someone embraces a rebellious lifestyle that, you know, maybe they still call themselves a Christian, maybe they don't. But before they get to that point, the Bible says there's a window of opportunity where we can lovingly sit down with them and, and just talk with them about where this is going. And, and those verses in Jude, I mean, they could be a lesson or a sermon all on their own. Um, I wish I didn't have to touch on them so briefly here. But in New Testament and Old Testament, we have a duty to warn the wayward Christians in our lives, those who are starting to drift away, okay? As that verse in Jude said, starting to drift a little bit too close to the fire, you got to snatch them out. Remember a few episodes ago, the word of the day was rebellion because Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Israel is currently a nation in rebellion against God, okay? In this book, when I say currently, like in the context of Ezekiel. And then in the next lesson that we did, the word of the day was obedience. Um, We did a whole lesson about that kind of. And then this time, the word of the day is responsibility. This is a theme that Ezekiel will return to in chapter 18 and in chapter 33. Responsibility. Who is responsible for a soul that is lost? Who is responsible when a righteous person drifts away? Well, God says that we are responsible. Every single one of us is responsible for the lost or the sinful people in our orbits. And guys, we don't want to be responsible. That's not good for us. So when we reach out to them and try to get them to turn around, then whether they repent or not, what we have done is we put the responsibility solely in their hands. So we're not going to be held responsible for their decision after that. I imagine this is what Paul was referring to in Acts 18. That's where he was in Corinth, and it said he was uh, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues, and he's trying to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's what it said in verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Again, that was Acts 18.6. And I think Paul was saying here that... um, You know, because I I think Paul was saying that because he was thinking of what Ezekiel said or what God said in the book of Ezekiel, that Paul was applying it to his own situation as an evangelist. And Paul's told these people, I have warned you, I have taken the time to share the gospel, but you have rejected it. I have done my part, but you are responsible for your own soul now. And after that, Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul applied Ezekiel 3. And Paul did not have to answer for the souls of these men. And and so for you and I, we just want to make sure that we're in the same boat regarding the people in our lives. And, and, you know, by the way, before you get upset about all this responsibility stuff and, and say that God's not being fair, I just want to point something out is that you only got saved because somebody took responsibility for you. If you're a Christian listening right now, it's because someone took the time to share the gospel with you or invite you to church or whatever they did to present Jesus to you, we are only here because someone gave the gospel to us. So take the time to reach someone else. We are watchmen. Now let's discuss a few attributes of a watchman real quick. Uh, I want to name three, before we move on to the last section of verses in Ezekiel 3, I want to name three attributes of a watchman, okay? Number one, warn of real danger. You know, I can imagine that if you're a watchman, 
you're up in your watchtower and you're looking out at the horizon for invading armies. Your people are sleeping soundly down in their houses, but you are awake because you're looking, you know, you're looking for a large group of people on the march. If you see a large group, you're going to blow your trumpet, wake everybody up, right? Makes sense so far? So if you're up in the watchtower and you see a drunk guy who's swinging a sword all around below, um, or maybe you just see like a lone wolf causing trouble, you probably don't blow the, the horn, the trumpet. You probably don't blow it over that. You probably don't wake up the whole town over that, right? <laughs> you're you're going to be selective over what you'd blow a trumpet over. And you're not going to do it for just some minor threat, right? You know, the, and, and here's what I'm saying. I would encourage you and I to do that as well, to not blow the trumpet over minor things. So what that means to me is that I focus my attention on the real dangers that I see in society. As a pastor, I try to focus on the issues that I think are most pertinent to our spiritual lives today. So, you know, I'm not going to do a bunch of sermons or podcast episodes about the mother God cults or the black Hebrew Israelites. You know, those, those are real cults out there. I think it's good that some Christians somewhere, they are doing apologetics work to refute them. But all I'm saying is that those things are so minor and, and insignificant compared to what I see as the real issues that the church is facing today. So I try to focus my attention on the things that I find to be the greatest threats to the gospel. Um, progressive Christianity has become a major pull, especially in the past few years. It's corrupting a lot of churches. It's caused churches to embrace unbiblical ideas, um, like these gay-affirming Christians and, and that believe critical race theory and universalism. Uh, or I'll talk about atheism and, and humanistic philosophy, because I see that leading to nihilism and and moral relativism, even in churches. And so those cultural factors, to me, they're just a much more pertinent issue in 2022. Or whenever it is that you listen to this episode, they probably still will, they will probably still be more pertinent issues than some random cults in different places of the country. So you're going to hear me talk about those kind of issues more often than I'm going to talk about like the black Hebrew Israelites, okay? Because I want to be a watchman who only sounds the alarm about the genuine threats. I don't want to be one who blows the trumpet because, you know, a lion got a little bit too close to the city wall. If I see someone in danger from that lion, I might go talk to them individually. But as a pastor or as a podcaster, I'm, I'm generally going to focus more on topics that present more major threats. Um, someone gave me a book when I was a young pastor on cults. <laughs> he said I needed to read this book because it would help me you know, in protecting and shepherding people in ministry. And the first chapter of the book, it was about someone named Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God. And, um, you know, if you're listening to this, if you're less than 40 or 50 years old, you've probably never heard of Herbert Armstrong. <laughs> he's, he's dead now. This book about the, the Herbert Armstrong cult, it was written in 1965. So, you know, someone gave it to me. I read it to be polite. Um, it wasn't very long anyway. But honestly... I have never felt the need to do a sermon on the dangers of the Herbert Armstrong cult because it's just not really a relevant threat anymore. You know, it died out. Uh, and like I said, as a pastor, as a podcaster, I'm generally going to focus more on the topics that present more major threats. So that just seems more logical to me for me to do as a watchman. Um, another attribute, second thing that's just a vital attribute of a watchman is that he be not uh, lazy, that he not be lazy, okay? A watchman who falls asleep on the job is a pretty useless watchman. So <laughs> just remember that to everyone listening. I, you know, I know how easy it is to just kind of coast through life with Jesus and just think, oh, hey, you know, I know my soul's secure. I don't want to ruffle anyone else's feathers. I'm just going to live my life and serve at my church and live happily ever after and go to heaven someday. I know that's easy to do. But do you, you know, I think if you were a citizen of a town, do you want a watchman who's looking out over your town and is just saying to himself, you know, I, I'm safe and secure up here in my tower. Nobody can get to me. I don't have to worry about invaders. You know, of course not. Yeah, that's not what you want from a watchman. You want a watchman who's responsible for everybody who's not in the tower. So if God has you in the tower, I'm just saying, don't be a lazy watchman. Don't try to just coast. What you should be doing is constantly evaluating yourself and, and just asking, is there anyone in my orbit that I can nudge toward Jesus? 
you know, am I looking for opportunities when I talk to people to insert spiritual ideas? Because I would say, you know, part of loving your neighbor at a minimum would have to mean being concerned about their eternity. You know, I don't think I should say, oh, I'm just going to love God and love my neighbor and I'll be fine. Just make sure that your idea of loving your neighbor uh, and getting along with people, make sure that's not just something that you do to avoid ever witnessing to them. <laughs> you know, I know it's not always fun to, to witness, to confront, or to even just have a so-called awkward conversation. They really aren't that awkward once you try them. But to have that, you know, you're afraid of an awkward conversation. And you say, oh, I just want to get along with everybody. I just want to love my neighbor. Well, at a minimum, I would say loving your neighbor means being concerned about where they spend eternity. And then, so don't be a lazy watchman. Here's a third and final attribute that I want you to focus on with being a watchman. And that that attribute is timing. When a watchman sees danger and knows that he's seeing danger, how long do you want that watchman to wait before they blow the trumpet? Should, should they take a few minutes just to let the invading army get closer first? Do they need to let the people sleep an extra 30 minutes before waking them? No, of course not. The army is getting closer by the minute. So when the watchman sees and, and has confirmed there is an invading force marching toward our town, immediately that watchman sounds the alarm. He's not going to wait one minute before he prepares the people. So I just want to make this third point about our role as a watchman. If you have someone that you need to talk to about God, don't put it off. Second Corinthians says today is the day of our salvation. We're not waiting for tomorrow because we don't know for sure if tomorrow is even going to come. And I'll talk a little bit here about me again personally as a pastor. You know, I feel a burden for every person who sits under a sermon that I preach. I feel a burden to push them closer to Jesus and closer to the gospel in every single message. Uh, I try really hard to include something about the divinity of Jesus or the message of the gospel, and I try to include it into every message that I preach, even these Bible studies that we do on a podcast. Because if someone walks into my church or pulls up my YouTube or, or a podcast, then that's an opportunity right there to put Jesus in front of them. But if, if I just do a sermon on lying or stealing or cussing or whatever, if I don't even bother talking about the forgiveness that's offered on the cross, then what have I done for that person? You know, I've just taught them a moralism that goes nowhere. I remember hearing a pastor one time, and he's talking to his wife. Uh, they're on their drive home from church, and he asked her how she liked the sermon. You know, she was generally very complimentary to him about his messages. But on this day, she had just been real quiet. So he asked how it was, and she told him, uh, it was a very nice lecture. And he was a little bit miffed. He said, well, it wasn't a lecture. It was a sermon. And she said, you never talked about Jesus in that one. If you just talk about something the Bible says, it's a seminar. But when you get to Jesus and the gospel, that's when it becomes a sermon. So I heard that story like 10 years ago, and it's just always stuck with me that, you know, if we just hammer on people about morality and rules and we leave out the forgiveness and grace and the love of God, we aren't really helping them. So back to what I was saying before, if someone comes into my church and if I don't put Jesus in front of them and they never come back a second time, well, you know what? Their blood could be on my hand because what if they got in a car wreck this week and that Sunday sermon was the last chance to connect with God? Well, if that's the case, I can't just give them a nice you know, Sunday school story about David and Goliath and and hope they come back next week to learn something else. No, the watchman blows the horn as soon as he sees trouble approaching. He doesn't wait till next week. He shouldn't even wait 10 minutes. He blows the horn. He warns them right away at every opportunity. So that's what I see kind of as, as my duty as a pastor. Not that I'm perfect at it. It's just that at every, every you know, I, at every opportunity that I can find, I try to include the gospel somewhere in my message. If, even if I'm preaching on something totally different, I just try to find a way to slip the gospel into it, usually toward the end, but it has to be something for someone to respond to if they haven't done so before. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he was this great preacher uh, back in the 1800s, and he had this epic quote about 
um, reaching people. And I can't help but feel that he was inspired by this passage from Ezekiel about being a watchman. Here's what he said. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Okay, well, let's finally get to the last part of today's lesson. And this is also, you know, finally the conclusion of Ezekiel's commissioning. After this, then Ezekiel will be in ministry, giving prophetic messages to the people. Everything up to now has been preparation. So let's read chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Chebar Canal, and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house. And you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute." And unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, He will, he who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So, as the verses started there, Ezekiel was told to go out into an open plain or valley and, and talk to God again. Um, it was a valley. It says that God appeared to Ezekiel similar to how he had appeared in the previous chapters. Uh, you know, I was thinking a lot of us want to hear from God more clearly. And one thing I've been thinking about lately is, is how often God came to people when they just went off alone, you know, away from everyone else. So perhaps if we want to hear from God more, we just need to get away from all the distractions, <laughs> from all the other people, turn off the phone. And, and just wait for God to speak. It might be a good idea. And then God told Ezekiel to go into his house and that Ezekiel would be shut up in his house and he won't be able to talk. Well, correction, Ezekiel will be able to talk, but he's only going to be able to say what God tells him to say. So unless God is putting the words into Ezekiel's mouth, then Ezekiel will essentially be speechless. And that sounds rough, <laughs> but it would probably do a lot of us some good <laughs> If we had that put on us, you know, one thing I like about the book of Ezekiel, um, it's so chronological in its layout. So what we're going to find is that Ezekiel is stuck this way for the next seven years of his life, which I believe, I, th I think it's covered up until chapter 32 or 33. So if I'm not mistaken, for most of the book, you know, Ezekiel will indeed talk, but it's only going to be the words that God puts into his mouth. Other than that, Ezekiel is not allowed to speak. I love John Corson's take on this. He's a pastor from out in uh, California, I think. He said, We talk about needing the power of the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God, but sometimes we need the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us quiet. <laughs> That's so true. I need that power sometimes myself. Uh, well, Ezekiel, he's going to have this restriction placed on him. It, said, uh, it says, or throughout the book, it goes on for the next seven years. And I found a really good explanation for why that is. Um, if you think about where we left Ezekiel last time, and that was around like verse 15 of this chapter, he was in a pretty crummy mood about his calling. He just, you know, he sat around taking it all in after God had called him and visited him. He was just taking it all in for seven days. And I took that as him being a bit overwhelmed. But then I read some other opinions, and these also seem pretty reasonable, that Ezekiel was sitting here for seven days because he was being resistant to God's call. Now, based on Ezekiel's attitude that we've seen so far, that seems like a pretty reasonable interpretation of the situation. So perhaps he loses his right to even speak for seven years because he re resisted his calling for seven days. Now, I know that sounds a little bit harsh <laughs> of God to do that to him, but if you think about it, it's still like the least harsh thing that he's done to Ezekiel <laughs> so far today. Um, plus Ezekiel's message in chapter four, it's going to include this idea of a day equaling a year. Um, so there's kind of a parallel there. We're going to get into that next time, 
But um, another element that was mentioned in these verses is that God would shut Ezekiel up in his house for a little while. It's said with cords. And there's talk of whether the cords are symbolic or if Ezekiel was literally tied up. And I would imagine this is probably just symbolic here, but God's just saying not to go outside until God told him to. So let me read verse 27 again as we wrap this up. It said, But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord. He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So that phrase right there, um, it might sound a little bit familiar to you, uh, like the New Testament phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, you've heard that before. Jesus said those words seven times in the Gospels. And then he says it seven more times in the book of Revelation. A lot of sevens, it seems, in today's lesson. In this verse, it very neatly wraps up this section of scripture about obedience, rebellion, and responsibility. That if Ezekiel will speak God's words, then Ezekiel has transferred responsibility to the hearers. And the hearer can hear or refuse to hear, but from that point on, the responsibility is on their own head. And if you stick with this podcast, you're going to hear about all this again in Ezekiel 33. But at the rate we're going, (laughs) that's going to be quite a while from now, you know, more than a year, I'd say. So for right now, let's just go ahead and recap today's lesson before we go. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. But first, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Well, if not, then you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of fake news through a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, then you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, then come join the fun with new episodes of that one each Friday. And if you have a question on this chapter, then just leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Um, The next time on this podcast, I'm going to get into a somewhat controversial topic. Um, Remember, as I was saying, as a watchman, I feel a duty to talk about the issues that I think present the greatest current threats to Christianity. So the next time my lesson, it's probably going to be called Socialism versus the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, socialism? You know, isn't that just an an economic theory? Or what does that have to do with the podcast on Christianity? (laughs) Well, I'll explain all that next time. That socialism, um, it's not just an economic theory that, that good Christians can disagree on. It actually, it has a whole... Um, Marxist philosophy behind it, which goes in direct contradiction to the Bible. So I will cover that next time and how the socialism worldview is is just basically not compatible with the biblical worldview. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little more research than normal. You'll probably see it next week because I've already started working on it. Um, when I first started working on it, I was a little bit like, uh, I thought it was maybe too big to even cover on a podcast episode, but I've really boiled it down to what I think is the most important. Um, And now I actually feel pretty good about it. So I think I'm going to get, I think I'm going to give a good overview on it in an episode that's not super, super long, um, but we'll just cover everything uh, comprehensively and effectively. So we're going to do that next time. And I would expect that'll be ready next week. Um, This current lesson, it had to come out an extra week later than normal because it just involved a lot of research on this episode. Uh, um, and the next episode is kind of already rolling along. I've got most of it written by now, but two episodes from now, we'll be back in Ezekiel looking at chapter four. That's another going to be another big episode as far as research. It's going to involve me doing a lot of research on that one. So chapter four is coming next time in the Ezekiel. And then uh, we're actually going to cover the whole chapter of chapter four. Um, That seems a little bit unbelievable considering how slow we moved through the first three chapters, but chapter four is actually a bit shorter, and um, we've got all the stage setting and all the introduction out of the way, so now we can move through the book of Ezekiel, you know, hopefully a little bit more rapidly, Um, but that chapter, chapter four, 
it's going to be intense. It's got some math involved. <laughs> it might just take me a little bit longer than normal to put that lesson together. So we have some big episodes on the way. Uh, let's recap what we were doing today. We talked about the concept of a watchman on the wall, that Ezekiel is going to be Israel's watchman. He's a sentry who watches the horizon for approaching danger. And as we talked about, if the watchman doesn't warn the people, then it's going to be the watchman's fault if they get slaughtered by an invading army. Because the people didn't even have a chance then. The watchman didn't do his job. And if the watchman does wake them up, they have time to ready themselves. From there, you know, they might survive, they might not. But either way, it won't be the watchman's fault because he did his duty. And Ezekiel is going to have to do his duty as well. He's going to be a prophetic voice for God to get Israel back on a righteous path. And we related this to our own responsibility to witness to the people that God has placed in our orbit. And I use that idea of orbit because I just it refers to the people that we come into contact with on a regular basis. You know, they are not there just by accident. Just like Pluto and all the planets that orbit the sun. They're not there by accident. God put them all there. And God has put us here, you know, with certain people that we encounter regularly. And he wants us to reach out to them, to be looking for opportunities to talk with them about the gospel. This is our duty. We are watchmen in our own lives as well. And hey, maybe you haven't done this stuff, but... Don't beat yourself up, okay? Just, you know, repent, ask God's forgiveness for people that you may have missed out on talking to, and then move forward. Let's not dwell on the lost opportunities that we can't get back. Let's look forward to the next opportunity, the one that we'll take. And and I'll be praying for you that you will have the boldness to do it. And by the way, that boldness, it starts with just opening your mouth and talking, And Ezekiel was apparently going to have a problem with that. So God put a restriction on Ezekiel. He said, I want to make you mute or dumb, as some might say. I want to make you, God said, to where you can't even talk unless I'm giving you the words to say. And that is going to guide Ezekiel for the next several chapters. It kind of reminds me of Jesus. You know, as we know, Jesus was only ever led by the Holy Spirit. He said he only does what his father does. He only speaks what his father speaks even on his way to the cross, okay, on trial for his life. As Isaiah said, he opened not his mouth. He only spoke when God wanted him to. And the Holy Spirit uh, might not just guide us in what to say, but also a lot of times in what not to say. And I could sure use some of that wisdom and guidance in my own life. And, And this wraps up chapter three, which is considered the commissioning section on Ezekiel. It's where God is commissioning this prophet to be a prophet. You know, every prophet gets commissioned. Some of them are more dramatic than others. Now, really, there might not be anybody more dramatic than this. It's, it's probably the most drawn out of all the prophets. God asked Isaiah who he, would, who he could send, and Isaiah was like, here I am, send me. But Ezekiel is just not so willing. He's more of like a Moses. He's resistant <laughs> to this career choice that God has picked out for him. And even God has already said, yeah, and most people are not going to like you, Ezekiel. If I had sent you to other people, they might listen, but Israel won't. And indeed, most people, as we'll see, they're going to react quite negatively or just apathetically to Ezekiel's words. He's not going to feel like he makes much of a difference. But by the way, I just want to say this. Ezekiel was not a total failure. Because if you think about the 2,500 years since he wrote these words... There have been thousands, perhaps even millions, of sermons that have been given from the book of Ezekiel. And in some of those sermons, people have gotten saved. People have gotten saved because of the words Ezekiel said and the actions Ezekiel did in the book that he wrote. So it wasn't all for nothing. Out of all the people who get saved in churches around the world every weekend, even this past weekend, Some of them are probably saved during a sermon from Ezekiel. So Ezekiel's work was not a waste. It has an effect on eternity up to today. And if you will take your responsibility as a watchman seriously, you can have an effect on eternity too. Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that if pandas go extinct, well, 
they kind of have it coming. <laughs>